Proverbs 910 podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. We're in the middle of a series called Women in Scripture. In this episode, we're going to continue in the book of Esther. When we left off the last episode, at the end of chapter 4, Esther had called for her cousin Mordecai and all of her maidservants to fast for three days because she had decided to go ahead and approach the king even though he hadn't called for her. She knew that doing this could cost her her life, but she had to try and save her people. Chris, chapter 4 ends with Esther's famous line in 416, If I perish, I perish. Esther shows a lot of courage. Chris, is there anything you'd be willing to stand against, even if you were all alone against everyone around you, and even if it meant it could cost you your life? Well, Rose, I think about both of us who have kids in the military and they're willing to die for their country. And I would hope that I'd be willing to stand alone and even risk my life for anyone, but especially for Jesus. And I know there's days when there are certain people I would really have trouble laying my life down for, if I'm going to be quite honest. Hmm. I hope I don't catch you on one of those days if I need you to risk your life for me. Rose, you know I'd lay down my life for you. I mean, I do love you even more than my cats. Now that's saying something, although I'm not really sure I believe that. (laughs) Anyway, Chris, you and Esther are among a list of people who stood alone and risked their lives for a cause they believe in. One is the German monk Martin Luther. During the 1500s, Martin Luther challenged the authority of the Pope and the Catholic Church, who believed that the ultimate authority over the things of God was the Church. Luther rightly believed that the Bible was the only authority on God and everything Christian. He knew that, as the Bible says, salvation was only attainable through faith in Jesus Christ, which is not what the church was teaching. No, and to us, we see Luther's beliefs and we think, of course he's right about the Bible and salvation. But to the Catholic Church at that time, he was a heretic and he was an outlaw. He got arrested, he was put on trial by the Pope and the princes of the country. He was charged with treason, which was punishable by death. Luther paved the way for many others to step forward and challenge the corruption that was going on in the church. You know, Rose, Luther is revered as a hero in the Protestant faith, but in the Catholic Church, they still think of him as a heretic and a poison to the Christian faith. They do. It's crazy, isn't it? Another example, more closer to home, of someone willing to stand alone is Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks is best known as the woman who refused to give up her bus seat to a white passenger on a segregated bus. Her actions credited for launching the civil rights movement and was initiated by the Montgomery bus boycott. Rosa had been the secretary of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP since 1943. She knew the NAACP was challenging the Jim Crow laws and she fully supported their plans to start a bus boycott in protest. What I find interesting is that Rosa Parks said she didn't refuse to give up her seat due to being physically tired. She said the only tired I was was tired of giving in. And we could go on for hours talking about people who willingly risk their lives for something they believed in. We could. And even today, there are many who are doing that. There are many countries where Christianity is illegal and having a Bible out in public or preaching about Jesus is punishable by death. Yet despite this, Christianity is growing in those countries. Thanks to the heroic efforts of some who reach out with the gospel and even at the cost of their life. Amen. So back to Esther. Let's see how things work out for. As we said, chapter 4 ended on a cliffhanger. Chapter 5 opens three days later after everyone had fasted. Chris, although the text doesn't say it directly, indirectly, we know that basically everyone's waiting on God. 
Under Jewish law, fasting was used to dedicate oneself and a specific situation to God. It would have always been accompanied by prayer. This is a good example of the author of Esther purposely leaving out words like God in prayer. Everyone was waiting on God. We see in the book of Isaiah what happens when we do wait on God. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This verse doesn't mean that if we just wait, God will give us the answer we want. But what it does say is that we gain new strength because when we wait on God, something amazing happens. Our weaknesses become strength. Not only that, but when we wait on God, we also get a better perspective on our situation. Chris, did you know that eagles can spot fish in a lake several miles away on a clear day? When Isaiah tells us that we'll soar like eagles, he's saying that as we wait on the Lord, we're able to better see what we're dealing with. Isaiah also says that waiting on God renews our strength. This is true for two reasons. One, because in the waiting, we build up our energy so that when we finally do deal with what we're waiting on, we'll have the strength that we need. But it's also the very fact that we're waiting on God means that we realize it's God who ultimately fights our battles for us. Knowing this is what gives us strength like we've never known. And Chris, I think an important truth we need to understand, a truth that we see clearly in the book of Esther, is that when it seems like we're just waiting and nothing's happening, a lot is actually happening. Esther was trusting in this. That's why after three days of fasting and praying, she can bravely go before the king, even though she has no reason to expect him to extend his scepter to her, and even though she knew the king wasn't very gracious with his last queen. He wasn't. But Esther's completely trusting God regardless of the outcome. And just like God turned Xerxes' hearts toward her when he picked her as queen, he does it again, and Xerxes extends his scepter to Esther. He says in Esther 5.3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. First crisis averted. Esther doesn't get her head chopped off by right. the executioners at Xerxes' side. In fact, not only does the king extend his scepter to her, but he tells her, make any request of him. He'll give her whatever she wants, up to half his kingdom. All right, Rose, we know that when King Xerxes said he'll give Esther up to half his kingdom, that he didn't mean that literally. Uh, no, that, but it's nice to think about. It is nice <laughs> to think about. I would like to have half the kingdom. But <clears throat> we should tell our listeners, this is a proverbial offer. It was just like when King Herod offered his stepdaughter up to half his kingdom. It means that he was really ready to grant almost any request. You're right. Xerxes wasn't ready to relinquish half his kingdom to Esther. But you know what? He realized she took an enormous risk appearing to him when he didn't summon her. He wanted to let her know, look, we're good. You have nothing to fear. Ask me whatever you want. You would think with that kind of encouragement from the king that it had to be tempting for Esther to make a request right then and there. But she doesn't, does she? No, she doesn't. Instead, she invites the king and Haman, the guy who's trying to kill her people, to a banquet. Rose, now we see what Esther's been doing during her three-day fast. She was praying and waiting on God, but she wasn't spending her time crying in her bed and just waiting for God to fix things. She was proactive. She was preparing a banquet to invite the king to. This is a pretty important point. There's a definite balance between us waiting on God and his timing and being proactive about our situation in the meantime. There is. God certainly can change a situation miraculously without us doing anything at all. But usually, 
He changes our situation through the practical and godly actions we take to help our situation. Right. And so Esther is doing her part. She's doing things and trusting God with the rest. Esther shows a real understanding of diplomacy and tact when she invites the king and Haman to a banquet instead of just blurting out what her problem was in the throne room. She knows what she was going to ask of the king was a big thing to ask. Not only is she asking for a solution to an irrevocable law, but she was also asking the king to give up 10,000 talents that Haman had promised him for killing the people, not to mention the risk of the king losing face with his advisors for acquiescing to his queen. Right, and don't forget that in order to make her case, Esther was going to have to reveal that she was Jewish. Doing that opened her up to all kinds of backlash from the king. She's been deceiving him for five years about her religion. So, like you said, she shows wisdom, and instead of just blurting out her request in the throne room, even when encouraged by the king, she waits. She wanted to win Xerxes' confidence in her first, and she also wanted Haman at the banquet so she could expose his wickedness to Xerxes. Sometimes, patience and timing is everything. It is, and I wish I had more of it sometimes. (laughs) Me too. Which may be why when the king and Haman come to this banquet and the king again says to Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. She still doesn't tell him about the edict against the Jews. You would think that being encouraged like this twice by the king would be the perfect time to tell him. She still puts it off again and invites Xerxes and Haman back the following day for another banquet. We don't know why she put him off another day. Maybe she lost her nerve, or maybe there was some deep sense in her that it wasn't the right time. But either way, God was in it and God was sovereign over it. For whatever reason, Esther made the decision not to tell the king that night, and that's exactly what God wanted and needed her to do, as we're going to see. Right. After this first banquet, Haman, who's pretty full of himself, swaggers home. While he's walking, he comes across Mordecai, who again refuses to bow to him, and Haman's good mood is completely ruined, and he's furious. Rose, why do you think Haman can't get over Mordecai not bowing to him? I think Haman's biggest problem is he has the sin of pride. C.S. Lewis said pride can never be satisfied because you only feel good about yourself until one person makes you feel otherwise. Haman was the prime minister of Persia. He was wealthy, he had a family, and he had just come from a banquet as the exclusive guest of the king and queen. He should have been flying high, but one person refusing to bow to him sends him into a downward spiral. Haman's whole world revolved around his fragile ego. When it was stroked by being invited to Queen Esther's banquet, he was happy, but it only took one person refusing to acknowledge his power to make him miserable. His self-worth was so shallow that one thing that didn't go his way canceled out all of the good things he had going on in his life. So to try to make himself feel better, he gathers his family and friends around to tell them how great he is so that they can restore his pride. That's so obnoxious. It is. Would your family and friends go for that? If I told them how great I was? I don't know. (laughs) As your friend, I'm going to tell you no. No, I don't think so either. (laughs) But, you know, Chris, what Heyman craved most of all was significance. He's just looking for it in all the wrong places. All of us are born with a God-sized hole. If it's not filled with God, it'll be filled with other things. Idols, power, addictions, greed, pride, you can go on and on. So while it's hard to feel any sympathy for Haman, we need to acknowledge that what he longed for most was not a bad thing. 
No, it wasn't. Like you said, he just looked in all the wrong places to get his self-worth. After he tells his family and friends how amazing he is, though, (laughs) he says in Esther 5.13, But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. You know, Rose, even if Haman had been successful in his plan and the Jews were exterminated, I'm betting that he still would not have been very happy. I don't think so. Something else would have come along and set him off again. That's exactly how it is for us when we try to find our significance in anything other than God. It is. And we see that Haman's wife and friends just add to his problem. Instead of giving him any kind of wise counsel, they tell him to build a gallow 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. And impale Mordecai on it. They wanted Mordecai humiliated as much as possible and killed in the most agonizing way possible. Instead of trying to talk some sense into him and trying to help Haman get over himself and his sinful pride, they tell him to feed it by taking personal revenge on Mordecai. Rose, in this instance, we see God using everybody's natural personality to achieve his goal in the book of Esther. Haman's pride, Mordecai's stubbornness, Xerxes' lust, and Esther's procrastination. In just chapter 5, we see everybody's natural inclinations working to fulfill God's plans. Exactly. Xerxes' lust and attraction to Esther grants her the chance to make her request. Esther puts off her request for another day. Haman's pride is pricked when he sees Mordecai at the gate and he won't bow. And Mordecai is stubborn and still refuses to bow, even though his life is now on the line. Even the bad advice Haman's family and friends give him works right into God's plan. Everyone is working independently of their own free will, but without knowing it, they're all working to bring God's plans to fruition. As we've seen throughout this entire book, ordinary things that on their own don't seem like God's doing anything or that he has anything to do with are working together to fulfill God's plan in God's exact timing. Makes your head hurt. It does when you think about it. Well, then this part's really going to blow your mind. If you remember back at the beginning of the book, when Mordecai was hanging out at the gate checking up on Esther, he discovered two of the king's men plotting to kill the king. Yep. And after Esther told the king and gave credit to Mordecai, he should have been rewarded immediately. But for some reason, he wasn't. Right. And in chapter 6, we see that for some reason, we see what the purpose was. God's hand was all over this. He needed Mordecai not to get rewarded at the time of the incident because God was going to use it to further his plan several years later. You're right. Chapter 6 of Esther opens with, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. This might seem like a casual event, and in a way it is. It was not unusual for the king to have his annals read to him to help put him to sleep. Right. But God made the king have insomnia on this exact night, request his chronicles read to him, and for the reader to turn to the exact page that recorded what Mordecai had done for the king. That blows my mind. Me too, because it happened four to five years earlier. So now, on this night, the king realizes nothing was done for Mordecai and all this time has passed. So because of this, he wants to do something big to honor Mordecai. And just as he usually does, he's looking for someone else to advise him what to do. He asked who is hanging around in the court. When his attendant tells him that Haman is, the king orders that he's brought in. And when Haman comes in, the king says to him, what shall be done for the man the king delights to honor? This is pretty cool what God does here. This makes me laugh every time. The king could have asked, what should I do for Mordecai who saved my life years ago? Or he could have said, 
What would you do for somebody you forgot to reward for saving your life? But he doesn't say any of that. His question is really vague. It's so vague, Haman has no way of knowing exactly who the king is talking about. Coincidence? Nope, there are none. No, there aren't. And we see why God orchestrated everything this way. Since the king isn't specific about who he's talking about, Haman immediately thinks the king's talking about him. (laughs) His pride is so out of control, he can't imagine that the king would want to honor anyone else except him. He says in Esther 6.6, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? He does say that to himself, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Because <laughs> if really he said bad. it to Xerxes, maybe Xerxes yeah, would have corrected uh, him. No. Yeah. Anyway, because he thinks it's him that will be honored, he comes up with this elaborate plan. Esther 6 verses 7 to 9 say, So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man who the king delights to honor. You can almost imagine Haman here and how he's all puffed up with pride thinking, yes, this is going to be me. Yeah, you can. You can imagine that. The next part is one of my favorite parts of the book of Esther. The king tells Haman, go at once and do the things you just suggested for Mordecai the Jew. I love it. At this point, Haman was feeling pretty good about himself. He had Mordecai and the Jews where he wanted them. The whole race was going to be wiped out in a few months. And he was going to get personal revenge on Mordecai by impaling him on a 75-foot pole. But now... He has to honor Mordecai by doing the very things he came up with. I love the irony of it. I would have loved to see Haman's face when Xerxes ordered him to do that for Mordecai. Me too. And, you know, disobeying the king wasn't an option, so Haman has to do what he's told. Yep. But you can imagine how he must have hated every second of it. Just in this one chapter of the book of Esther, we see God's providential hand working in the ordinary things to unfold his plan. Everything from the sinful plans made by two men to the perfect timing of Mordecai overhearing those plans but not ever having been honored for telling the king to a specific night the king Xerxes could not sleep to the specific part of the chronicles that were read to him to a king who cannot make choices for himself many times to Haman being the first one waiting to see the king and on and on and on. You could go on and on. You could. Alistair Begg once said, the purposes of God are brought about by those whose only view is to fulfill their own purposes. Chris, nothing has ever been, nothing is now, and nothing will ever be out of God's control. Goldsworthy says in his book, History is not the story of God's trial of something good that failed, thus requiring him to come up with some emergency package as an afterthought. God's ultimate creation plan was not Adam and Eve in Eden, but Christ in the gospel. I love that. That is one of my favorite. Well, that's a perfect place to end this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Join us in our next episode as we wrap up the book of Esther. As always, feel free to leave feedback, comments, or questions you may have. And don't forget, if you like what you've heard, please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen on. Yes, please do that. You can also check out our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com, and like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed day.